This podcast is brought to you by the American Urological Association and hosted by Dr. Victor Nitti, Chair of the Office of Education. This podcast was recorded on March 14, 2016. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Vic Nitti, and I want to welcome you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today, we are going to speak about the choosing wisely statements that the AUA has recently introduced. I have with me as my co-host, Dr. Stuart Wolf, who is the Associate Chair for Urologic Surgical Services at the University of Michigan and the Chair of AUA's Science and Quality Council. I can think of no one better to discuss the choosing wisely statements than Dr. Wolf. Uh, Stuart, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Nitty, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here to get to share with your listeners uh, these really important statements that we've just put out. So, Stuart, one one question I just wanted to ask you before we start is, can you just tell us a little bit about the Choosing Wisely project uh, and how that all came about? Sure. The Choosing Wisely project is an initiative of the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, the ABIM Foundation. And they're, they're a, a, a philanthropic patient education-oriented arm of the American Board of Internal Medicine, uh, very similar to our Urology Care Foundation, actually. Uh, and they have uh, sponsored the Choosing Wisely campaign, initially aimed at trying to reduce overuse of medical procedures or medical tests primarily through patient education. The thought would be that there would be these statements um, that would be put out there advising patients, hey, if your doctor doctor says you should get this test, maybe you don't need it, ask him or her about it. You know, hey, if the doctor's recommending this procedure, maybe you don't need it, ask your doctor about it. Um, The thought being that they would primarily be patient education. And certainly they are that. Uh, to some extent, but frankly, I think the AUA and most groups have found them to be very useful for provider education. Uh, we we have been using the choosely wisely statements as a great opportunity to help uh, educate our membership and members of primary care specialties about some very important practices in urology. Great, and there was uh, the in- initially there were five statements. The first five were previously introduced, and then in the last year, we have uh, Choosing Wisely Statements 6 through 10, and uh, those are the ones we're going to focus on on this podcast. So let's talk about uh, statement number six, don't prescribe antimicrobials to patients using indwelling or intermittent catheterization of the bladder unless there are signs and symptoms of urinary tract infection. This is something we all uh, know about as urologists, uh, but it drives us mad when we see it uh, by primary care providers who are constantly putting some of these patients on antibiotics. And as we know, patients with indwelling or intermittent catheterization are invariably colonized with bacteria. These colonized bacteria are usually not harming the patient, and there's no evidence that treatment of these bacteria when there are no signs and symptoms of infection has any benefit whatsoever. So we're not saying, of course, never to give antibiotics in the setting of an indwelling or intermittent bladder catheterization. We're saying only to do so only when there are signs and symptoms of 
a urinary tract infection? Stuart, I think this is this is very important because we are often faced with uh, either patients who have been treated or were asked by uh, our our primary care colleagues to treat patients and uh, and we don't uh, we know or we feel that that treatment is not necessary. Uh, do you know of any instances where urologists have actually referred the primary care physicians back to these choosing wisely statements? Because it's it's certainly something that I would do on a regular basis. I I can tell you that I certainly have. Um, you know, when I get pushback, uh, I will actually include the um, the uh, link to the website in my. Uh, note, and this might be one of the few advantages of an electronic medical record, you know, pretty easy to cut and paste the URL into a into a note. Uh, and then uh, if they get electronically, they can even click on it uh, and send them right to the Choosing Wisely uh, 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 website. You know, t- to be honest and to be fair, this isn't always really easy. Uh, you know, we are dealing with patients who often have altered anatomy and then some related deficits, maybe uh, neurological deficits. So the signs and the symptoms of a UTI in these patients can, in fact, be different than the typical dysuria and urinary urgency and frequency. Uh, So we have to remember that there might be a wider spectrum of of signs and symptoms indicating an active UTI, such as uh, fever, altered mental status, uh, malaise with no other cause, maybe flank or pelvic pain, um, flank or suprapubic tenderness, uh, hematuria, of course, uh, and I suppose in spinal cord injury patients, you'd have to think about increased spasticity, autonomic dysreflexia, or some sense of unease. Now, I would imagine that if we had a situation where um, instrumentation was uh, being planned, for example, then it would not be unreasonable to treat uh bacterial colonization, for example, prior to a urologic surgical procedure, something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely, Vic. You're absolutely right. And this is consistent, of course, with the AOA's best practice statement on uh, perisurgical antimicrobial prophylaxis. Um, when a patient is colonized, especially if they have this indwelling catheter or the intermittent catheterization, you know, we know that we cannot get them infection-free. That's why we don't treat them with antibiotics unless we have to. But exactly as you said, in the setting of a procedure, we need to reduce the bacterial load to make that procedure as safe as possible. There are no strict guidelines as to how long one should treat a patient prior to a procedure in order to reduce that bacterial load. I personally usually do it for five or seven days, but I don't know if there's any direct evidence that that's a good number. Uh, but you're right, that's the major exception. Um, another, uh, you know, another procedure you have to think about would be, say, placing a suprapubic tube. You know, when we place a, a, a transurethral catheter, we don't recommend antimicrobial prophylaxis. We might not necessarily uh, recommend antimicrobial prophylaxis for placing a suprapubic tube in general, but certainly in a patient with a colonized system, it would be a good idea. Great. So I think for our listeners, it's really important um, that we utilize the Choosing Wisely uh, statements and the Choosing Wisely campaign to, to help educate our primary uh, care colleagues. Um, and I can think of no, nowhere, uh, nowhere that this applies more than, uh, in, the, than in the area of uh, asymptomatic bacteria and especially in the uh, in the presence of an indwelling catheter or even 
uh, self intermittent self catheterization. Uh, let's move on to choosing wisely statement number seven. Don't obtain computerized tomography scan of the pelvis for asymptomatic men with low risk clinically localized prostate cancer. Uh, this uh, is a statement, of course, that swings all the way to the other extreme. This is not for the primary care provider. They would never be doing this. This is aimed squarely at the urologist trying to reduce a, a overuse of imaging. Um, a computerized tomography scan of the pelvis is very unlikely to provide actionable information in men with low-risk prostate cancer. Now, let's just take one commonly accepted definition of low-risk prostate cancer being Gleason score less than 7, PSA less than 20, and tumor stage of T2 or less. Um, it's important at the outset to say that we're talking about CT scan of the pelvis, not MRI of the pelvis. MRI of the pelvis, in fact, may be very useful in some men with low-risk prostate cancer who are considering active surveillance because there you're looking at the anatomy of the prostate itself. About the only thing you're looking for with a CT scan is uh, prostate uh, cancer, uh, in, excuse me, in the prostate cancer patient would be lymph node enlargement. The chance of significant lymph node enlargement being seen in a man with low-risk clinically localized prostate cancer is very low. And in fact, lymph node enlargement seen on a CT scan in a man with low-risk clinically localized prostate cancer has a pretty good chance of not being cancer at all. So now all we've done is thrown up a huge red flag that confused things and removed value from the whole situation. There really is not any role for CT scanning of the pelvis in these men with low-risk prostate cancer. Uh, do you think that this is, uh, in any part of the country, still regular practice, or do you think most urologists have been educated enough not to, to do CT scans in this setting? Well, we, you know, we've certainly seen from some surveys of practices and some of the registries, for example, music here in Michigan, uh, where uh, the, there unfortunately still are CT scans being obtained in the setting. It's not a majority. You know, I think most urologists have heard the message along with bone scans, uh, but it's still being, we're still seeing it. And, you know, this is a very expensive practice given, given the number of low-risk prostate cancer patients being diagnosed Given the expense of a CT scan, the economic impact of this single statement is enormous. Great. Okay. Now moving on to statement eight, and this is one that is uh, uh, quite relevant to, to my practice. Don't remove synthetic vaginal mesh in asymptomatic patients. Uh, and this is something I know uh, is a practice that is, uh, is certainly going on in, in some areas. Certainly. And, and you can answer this question better than I can, Vic. In, in general, I've been told by my colleagues in female urology that it's often the patient who walks in with a stack of papers who says, who, who demands that they, that you remove their mesh. Isn't that correct? That is correct. It's, it's patients who uh, are demanding it uh, perhaps for um, uh, underlying secondary gain reasons uh, sometimes it's just a, a fear. Uh, sometimes it is because they have been told uh, somewhere along the line that uh, removal of mesh, uh, uh, if one is considering a class action suit, if one has a surgical procedure, it increases the likelihood uh, that they will uh, see some uh, compensation from that suit. And that's, this is a practice, unfortunately, that we uh, see going on. And, and 
you know, my opinion is always uh, that this is not a uh, a benign thing to do, and you can take an asymptomatic patient and make her very symptomatic if something doesn't go quite right. So uh, it's not a procedure that is without potential downsides. And if somebody uh, is doing well, and and we know lots of patients with synthetic vaginal mesh do well with it, um, it it could only cause them harm to, uh, to try and remove it if they're not having any symptoms. Right. So that was, you know, the, the, the point of the statement was then to help the urologist basically give them an, a nice little reference that they could use in their discussion with patients to try to talk them out of their demands for getting the, the synthetic vaginal mesh removed. You know, these products have not been, quote, recalled by the FDA. There's no direct evidence that the mesh is carcinogenic or leads to tissue breakdown or any other uh, systemic problems. There's no evidence that removing mesh that isn't causing a problem now could change anything down the road. And certainly, as you pointed out, the actual surgery of removing the mesh has a lot of potential complications and downsides. Exactly. And, and you know, I'd point out to our listeners that this statement does not mean that you shouldn't remove vaginal mesh if there's a good reason, if the patient uh, has symptoms, if there's pain, if there's point tenderness, uh, if there's extrusion, erosion, uh, or infection. Certainly those would be uh, very good reasons to um, uh, a vaginal mesh, but uh, we don't want to be subjecting asymptomatic patients to an operation that they don't need that can have uh, significant morbidity. Uh, we will now switch back to uh, to prostate cancer and uh, choosing wisely statement number nine, offer PSA screening for detecting prostate cancer only after engaging in shared decision-making. And this uh, statement, uh, frankly, Nick, is really the core of the reason why the AOA decided to re-engage and write another five statements. Uh, two uh, primary care groups uh, had come out with choosing wisely statements that said, don't screen for prostate cancer, period. And obviously, the AOA could not let that, those statements go uh, under, unopposed. Um, we, uh, so as such, we formatted uh, and what we thought was a very important statement. And I'm going to say it again because I think the way we put it together is an important clue as to what we mean, uh, what we intend to say with this. Offer PSA screening for detecting prostate cancer only after engaging in shared decision-making. So the problem was the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF, was wrong in recommending against any and all PSA screening. Clearly, our AOA guideline for the early detection of prostate cancer contains a very cogent summary of all the reasons why PSA screening for prostate cancer is appropriate in correctly selected and counseled men. In fact, the two main differences between the USPSTF and the AOA with regards to PSA screening are illustrated by the two halves of the Choosing Wisely statement. So again, that first half is, quote, offer PSA screening for detecting prostate cancer, period. PSA screening has value and should be available for use by informed men. For the USPSTF, to suggest that it is never of value to a man and therefore should never be available, frankly, is paternalistic and against patients' rights. Now, if we go to the second half of the statement, 
only after engaging in shared decision-making, that, that again is where we differ, the AOA differs with the USPSTF. There are indeed risks and benefits to PSA screening. It is not all about benefits, as frankly some urologists thought in the early days of screening, but it's not all about risks, which is what the USPSTF seems to think, and they ignore the benefits. In fact, both benefits and risks need to be weighed by the patient in shared decision-making with the physician. So we think this is a really important statement that really gets to the heart of, of why the AOA disagrees with the USPSTF and why we, frankly, are, are fighting for changes uh, in the legislation uh, supporting USPSTF. Yeah, I really like this statement because I think it covers, as you said, it covers both grounds. It, it, uh, it, it speaks to the value of PSA screening, and it also speaks to uh, patients being informed about <clears throat> why they're being screened and what we uh, can gain from that and the potential risks of screening as well. So uh, I think this, this statement is very thoughtful and uh, uh, very nicely summarizes uh, how I think uh, most urologists think about this, and I think it's 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 done uh, uh, thoughtfully uh, and appropriately. So I uh, I like that statement. It helps me um, uh, an awful lot, and it's something that I've used in my practice. I don't see uh, lots of men with prostate cancer, but I do see uh, men who uh, are candidates, potential candidates for screening, and I, I do have that discussion with them on a regular basis and. Uh, um, I think my patients are better informed uh, when I do that and, uh, and and are more comfortable with the decision to either uh, screen with PSA or not. Um, the the statement number 10 is, is this is something I just dealt with today. And I think this is something that uh, um, this, this statement, again, speaks to how something that we can use to educate uh, our primary care colleagues. And statement ten is don't diagnose. No, statement ten is don't diagnose microhematuria solely on the results of a urine dipstick. Exactly right, and that's that's ironic that you uh, mentioned that you dealt with this in clinic today, Vic. I did too. I was referred uh, two patients for microscopic hematuria. One of them actually had a, a microscopic urinalysis, uh, two of them, in fact, and clearly had the disease, had, had, had the problem, excuse me, the symptom, the sign. Uh, but one of them just had the positive dipstick. And to be honest, batting 50% is pretty good in my clinic. I, usually it's like one out of four have the microscopic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so as we both know, and as our, all of our listeners know, microscopic hematuria is one of the most frequent reasons for urology consultation. Uh, getting the diagnosis correct from the get-go really improves care dramatically. You know, we have made a lot of efforts from the guidelines committee ever since our first uh, statement about microscopic hematuria back in the early 2000s, over 10 years ago, was our first statement. And even and then we were making the firm, firm statement that you needed to get a microscopic urine analysis. We even went to the uh, uh, to the means of publishing our guidelines in the Journal of the Family Practitioner Groups to try to get the, the word out. Despite this, over and over again, as you pointed out, we keep getting referred patients who haven't had the microscopic exam. We know that the urine dipstick is a great screening test. It's exquisitely sensitive at detecting true blood in the urine, but like most screening tests, it is designed to be very sensitive and therefore 
can't be very specific. What that means, of course, is that many, many urine samples that are positive for blood on the dipstick do not, in, ha- in fact, have the three or more RBCs per high-powered field that's required to make the diagnosis. So as you pointed out, this is something we really, you know, we can really dramatically reduce costs, uh, reduce hassle to the patient if we can get this right. And I can tell you that the patient I saw today, um, who actually did also come with a microscopic uh, uh, exam, but it was only two red cells. And this is a patient who's been, who's had two prior workups for microscopic hematuria in the past. Um, I was very grateful when I told her that she did not meet the criteria to be reevaluated again uh, and uh, that she can simply be followed and have uh, a microscopic urinalysis done at a regular interval and does not need to have another cystoscopy or, or be exposed to radiation again. So I think this is important. I think it is, um, it is easy for us as urologists to um, want to please our referring physicians and um, they're referring the patient for microscopic hematuria because they don't want to quote unquote miss anything. But I think that uh, it's, uh, um, it's proper to make sure that that patient really does have microscopic hematuria uh, before we uh, start to, to subject the healthcare system to added costs and subject the patients to uh, added morbidity. And even though we might say, well, a cystoscopy isn't all that morbid, uh, certainly there can be consequences. So we just want to make sure that we're, that we're doing these tests uh, on a, on a, um, uh, for, uh, for good reason. And I think the guidelines, the guidelines on microscopic hematuria themselves are, um, they have a fairly low threshold. So to go below that threshold, um, I think is not being very prudent. So uh, this is a statement that, again, I use on a regular basis and have no problem uh, referring my primary care colleagues to this. And they're grateful for it. And they're uh, happy that the patient has uh, had uh, their due diligence and whether they need or don't need um, uh, another workup or or an initial workup. I agree. Uh, Stuart, I have one question for you. I was just going to summarize the um, the first five statements, not that we really have to discuss them, but I was going to just summarize them and I'm looking on the website and I can't find them. Sure. I've got, <laughs> Unless I've got, you, if you have them, you can just summarize them. Yeah, I can I, just ask you sure. to, to do it. Okay. Sure. So, right. so we'll pick up, uh, Stuart, thank you so much for that, uh, very comprehensive, uh, discussion about the, uh, the five latest choosing wisely statements. I wonder if you can just briefly tell the audience, uh, uh, what the first five choosing wisely statements were. Sure. And you know, hopefully these are statements that we've gotten more traction on since these were published a few years ago. Uh, but let's go over them and, and, and maybe not. Uh, statement number one, a routine bone scan is unnecessary in men with low-risk prostate cancer. So this, of course, is the corollary of the CT scan statement, uh, uh, statement number seven that we just discussed. Uh, so you shouldn't be getting a bone scan either in those men with low-risk prostate cancer. Uh, Statement number two is don't prescribe testosterone to men with erectile dysfunction who have normal testosterone levels. Now, of course, we should be describing testosterone in any men who have normal testosterone levels, at least in the absence of significant symptoms. But we wanted to point out that at this point, at least at least at this time, the statement was written. The impression was that uh, testosterone was really being overused for the treatment of erectile dysfunction. Uh, statement number three is don't order creatinine or upper tract imaging for patients with benign prosthetic hyperplasia. 
certainly there may be reason to other reasons to get those tests. Say you're going to take a patient in the operating room and you want to know his baseline renal function, et cetera. Uh, but in general, for the just solely for the workup of BPH, you don't need a creatinine. You don't need upper tract imaging because, again, those tests like the bone scan, like the CT scan in men with low risk prostate cancer, generally don't lead to actionable information and therefore don't add value to the patient's care. Statement number four is don't treat an elevated PSA with antibiotics for patients not experiencing other symptoms. Uh, this I don't think is as common as it was a few years ago, but there was a flurry of interest for a while in trying to you know, uh, knock down the number of people with elevated PSAs by giving them antibiotics for a few weeks to see if they had some low-grade prostatitis. Multiple studies have shown that that actually is not a good strategy and should be abandoned. And finally, the fifth uh, choosing wisely statement in the original set was don't perform ultrasound on boys with cryptorchidism. Uh, and of course, we've recently come up with the cryptorchidism uh, guideline uh, that, that talks to this uh, in more detail. But basically, again, uh, like for several of these statements, it's unlikely that this test will lead to actionable information and therefore should be abandoned. Well, thank you, Stuart, for that summary. And, uh, um, you know, as uh, as those in the audience can uh, can tell, I, I think this was an extremely useful summary of 10 choosing wisely statements. The, f- the first five that we presented, which were actually the second five, in a little bit more of a comprehensive uh, way, I think these are simple and easy statements for us all to remember. Uh, we can go to these statements as a source to uh, educate uh, our colleagues. I want to emphasize that so we can use these statements not only to educate ourselves, but to educate our colleagues and to uh, um, help support the positions we take when we do or don't uh, order a test or, or, or take a particular um, action on a patient. They're simple they're concise, and they are extraordinarily useful, and they are something that I use on a regular basis. So thank you so much for that summary. I want to thank our audience for listening. Uh, If you uh, need more information, uh, please visit uh, the website at uh, www.auanet.org slash university. Uh, This is all on the AUA University. Thanks so much for listening.